Hi and welcome back to Perfect Imbalance, the podcast all about well-being, happiness and achieving greater fulfillment. I'm your host Jeff Way and I'm back with episode 26. Last week's episode with Fiona Murphy really got me thinking about allowing ourselves to get messy and showing more vulnerability. In fact, I'm finding myself talking to more and more people about vulnerability in the hope that they'll start to embrace it like I am. This past week has also seen me interview the lovely Kate Richardson-Walsh, GB hockey gold medalist from Rio. Also, I've met up with Richmond Stace, the pain physio from episode 22, as we ran and collaborated along the canals in Birmingham. Finally, I've had the pleasure of attending my wife's PhD graduation in Liverpool at the wonderful Anglican Cathedral. Now, on this week's guest episode, I talk with Dr. Steve Marshall, photographer, executive coach at Astridge Business School and ex-fighter pilot. Steve and I discuss a number of topics during this interview, including work-life balance and how he's never achieved it, corporate values and wearing someone else's clothes, and his most recent work, vocation, passion, seen differently working on purpose. Here's Steve. Steve, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to come on the show. It's an absolute pleasure uh, again, uh, because we spoke a few weeks ago to be able to spend some time, uh, understand a little bit more about your journey uh, and also gaining some insight from you. So thank you very much indeed. You're welcome, Jeff. Nice to be here. Good man. Now I've shared my views ahead of today uh, on work-life balance um, and I'm very keen to to get the thoughts of my guests uh, right at the very start of, of, of each show going forward. So Steve, what's your thoughts on work-life balance? Um, I think it's a bit like um, Mahatma Gandhi's views on Western civilization, you know, it would be a good idea. Um, and uh, so I I think it is a good idea, and I've never achieved it. You know, as I look back over my um, few careers, um, it's always been a case of kind of full immersion um, and moments of madness, and then a real need to step back and and stop. You know, and, and a few times things have come to a grinding halt. Um, so I, I I have never been able to achieve it, um, and I think my most exciting moments, my most creative moments, are when I'm not in particular balance. Okay, good. Interesting that you say you've never achieved it. Does does it worry you that you've never achieved it? Um, well, you know, it's it's the, as you say, it's the myth, isn't it? It's the myth that we're all told that to be um, successful and uh, you know just to prosper and have a and look after our well-being, we should be in some kind of balance. I mean, I. I I generally feel that the work-life balance that gets sold to us feels a bit too worky for me, actually. There's just, you know, we're trying to fit everything in around work and, you know, the fact that work comes at the front of that. You know, work is surely a part of life, so what about a life-work balance or something? But, you know, we, we prioritise work in the whole idea of work-life balance. Um, and I think when I'm, when I'm feeling balanced, I'm probably not working that much. Um, and work feels like I'm really, you know, jumping into something. So uh, I, I think they're just different things. 
Excellent, excellent. I'm I'm not looking for any of my guests to uh, necessarily agree with me. I'm I'm just I'm just wanting to have that that discussion and that little debate around it because it is something that we've been sold. I'm not convinced it's it's necessarily achievable. I do think balance itself is important in our lives. But what I really liked about what you shared there was when 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 you're you know in those moments and 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 you know really going for it and, and really energized and really doing stuff then typically you're out of balance and for me it's having that awareness of, of where you are at any one point and and deciding to change it if you want to yeah yeah well i and i think that's pretty critical in my um various endeavors i've often not spotted how out of balance i am and so there's something about you know for me the the neither it's about balancing kind of two uh, ways of being, if you like, both of which are fundamentally out of balance. So I realize when I work, I'm fully in it. And when I'm not working, I'm fully in that. You know? So so neither in that moment feels particularly balanced. If I'm working, it feels like I'm overworking, which I love, mostly. And when I'm not working, I feel like I'm, you know, on permanent vacation or something like that. So. Uh, I, and I need to swap between the two, but they're not, they don't feel like particularly balanced states or phases. Good. And, and that's, I'm hearing more of that. And that, that, that reassures me that actually people are functioning, people are living um, happily, uh, achieving success, um, have some personal endeavors, do enjoy work in a lot of cases. And, and so this work-life balance isn't really an issue or it isn't really something that they are you know, striving towards, they're just doing things. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the whole thing to me seems to have been based on a nine to five or, or, you know, a regular work culture, which I guess came out of the Industrial Revolution when people needed to go to factories and then they had time off. Well, we don't need to do that anymore. You know, it, what, what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right now, for those guests that are wondering who you are and what you're about, Steve, Describe what it is you do and why people want to work with you. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. So what I do, I mean, I have most recently, I've been a change consultant and I hold an academic position. Um, and what I'm doing in those moments is I'm convening groups of people. I'm helping them to learn in ways that they achieve some kind of collective personal transformation if you can get the the piece the, yeah the distinction there i think people have to work together in relationship to do that kind of thing but um the transformations that we achieve in those moments um are individual are personal um and yeah you know, as i say that that sounds so flaky but actually you know i run a phd in that kind of thing so you can do that with some rigor and some um uh, you know, just process to it. And at times you have to drop all that to really make the breakthroughs. Um, so that's so that's what I do. I, I kind of facilitate, I, I, I try and convene communities that facilitate other people's learning. Um, and I love, I love the passion and the energy that comes with that. And, and, and I know having spoken to you previously and, and you've shared some examples as well, you actually reinforce what it is you're doing and, and, and also why you're doing it. At what point did you decide to focus your work on facilitating and, and helping others, you know, with purpose in the way that you're doing now? 
Oh, well, so, um, I mean, it, it kind of grew out of a bit of a crisis. In my previous line of work, I was a military fast jet pilot, and uh, I was in the military for 22 years. And what happened to me during that, which, which was an incredible career, I mean, just amazing. But uh, in those 22 years, 26 of my friends were killed in accidents. And I thought that it might be helpful is, as I came to kind of get promoted out of the flying job to figure out if I could do anything about that because it just seemed like that was okay. And I didn't think it was, you know, that kind of loss rate. Interesting, when you talk about loss rate, you know, these are people. Um, so I tried to do something about it in the military. I think we were kind of successful with that. I wasn't the only person doing the work, but um, I was interested in how we would change the whole value set of that organization and realized there was a lot of work to be done. And I think as I tried to open up, I, I started to spot the ways that I'd been habituated into thinking about organizational life and what that could mean. And um, I left the military um, on a wish and a prayer, really, to set up a company to see if I could um, work with people to help them change the way that they thought. Uh, but it was born of that kind of crisis, you know, it's the frustration of thinking, this, this is a great organization, but it's having a horrible side effect. How do we do something like that, about that? And if I think of many of our organizations these days, they're all great, they're doing fantastic work. And, you know, they have side effects. You know, our, our life is not shadowless these days as privileged Westerners, basically. And, and it, we'll talk a bit more, I'm sure, about um, your previous careers. Um, but in terms of what you're doing now, how, how does that compare? Can you compare it to, to what you were doing as, uh, in terms of fulfillment uh, and your own purpose to, to what you were doing previously? Um, it's kind of an ongoing thing for me, I think, trying to find that uh, purpose and trying to find that fulfillment. And a military life in some ways for me is one of service. So I sort of found that and, and I, you know, and there was more to find. Um, you literally wear somebody else's uniform, of course, when you're in the unit, when you're in the military. And I think many of us literally wear somebody else's, or, you know, wear somebody else's uniform much more subtly in uh, our organizational lives. So you know, I always get a bit cringy when organizations publish their values, somebody's values, and then say, everybody should sign up for this. And um, I think, well, they're not my values. How can they be? You know, how can you sign up for other values? So we kind of go through our lives, I think, often wearing somebody else's clothes, you know, or wearing somebody else's face or something like that, trying, trying to be something that isn't quite us. And the military had you know, great opportunity for me. I loved lots of it, and it wasn't quite me. Um, so that was my struggle with it, I think. I think it's fascinating what you say about values, and, and, and I've, I've held a similar belief for, for a long time in that when, when a, an organisation gives you a set of values and says this is, this is what we're about, this is how we operate, this is how we function, this is how we want you to behave, very rarely do they... First of all, understand the values of each of the employees, which invariably are different. And then secondly, try and almost match them or, or, or align them in some way that there is this deeper sense of, of meaning or, or, or purpose between the organization and, and the employee. And, and I went through this process 
about five, five and a half years ago with the company that I was in, where the employees were encouraged to, of a list on a wall of about 20 values, you had two stickers that you could put next to the ones that resonated the most. <laughs> and, and, and we felt involved, but actually we, we then had discussions afterwards which said, well, I never chose any of those values or I've only got one out of five that appeared. And, and it just, I think organizations can fall into that trap of thinking, right, we need values and, and, and that's how uh, we operate. And we'll just share them with employees when they come in, they'll understand them and then they'll behave and function in that way. And it doesn't happen. Yeah. A colleague of mine says that um, when we when organizations publish their mission, their values or whatever, those are normally the things they can't do. So, um, you know, if you <laughs> this this pertains particularly to a local council, I think that were I, I don't know what they were. What would a local council, you know, extol inclusion, diversity. And of course, that was the stuff they couldn't do. So they put that up there. Um, as though it's some kind of aspiration, which is nice, but you know, let's at least be upfront about that. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I'm thinking now, I, I went into another organization as a consultant a couple of years ago, and one of their values was um, called Frank, about being <laughs> frank. Um, yeah, I discovered quite quickly that they, they didn't want people to be frank. Um, and so I think to your point there, there's it's almost a, this is how we want people to operate. This is the... This is the external message that we'll put out there as well that says, you know, we're all about diversity, we're all about inclusion. And then you get into an organization, you think, well, it doesn't feel very diverse in here. Um, you know, everybody seems to fall into one category or, or, or two categories. And in terms of inclusion, no, I feel very excluded. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, in terms of some of your own strengths, traits, or behaviors, I'm always fascinated to understand. Um, what's behind each of my guests? Because invariably you don't arrive at this point. There's, there's certain things that have allowed you to, you know, achieve the success that you have and, and also to go through the journey and, and experience some failures along the way. But what are some of your key strengths, traits or behaviours that have allowed you to, to get to this point? Well, um, I think I work hard. I have a capacity for hard work. <laughs> That's not very uh, helpful, is it? Um, I, uh, I I find that that analysis strengths really tricky. You know, whenever I've done a psychometric, it says these are your strengths. I go really. Um, so I, I struggle to see them in myself, um, but I know that. But the evidence would suggest that I can work hard. Um, I have read a lot of books. <laughs> I'm um, uh, not great at, I, I think one of the reasons why I convene groups is because I'm not a natural group person, but I, you know, I try and compensate for that. So um, I try and bring that into play. I have a pretty um, strong sense of fairness, I think, and social justice. Um, so I think those are those are the things that I think I would bring to the table. I can learn pretty quickly, and I can, you know, I I am actually as I speak fundamentally a team player. You know, I I look for the team again. That's a helpful in the military. Um, I look for the team rather than myself, um, which has cost me at times, you know. Uh, but that's so I think those are the things that I would bring. Doesn't feel comfortable to talk about them in that kind of way though. I don't know. What I'm 
No, and I, I, I can sense that. Yeah, from, from a listener perspective, they can't see uh, what I can see. Um, but there is there is an uncomfortableness there for you, which, um, and it might be because you're, you're, you're speaking about you rather than, you know, you know, other people that you have worked with or groups that you've brought together. Um, who have been some of the great teachers or encouragers along the way for you? Um, well, the... Uh... I, I am particularly indebted, I guess, to a guy called Robin Ladkin, who um, was a change consultant and academic who was my PhD supervisor. And I thought he was a quite an intimidating sort of guy, and it wasn't my plan to have him as my supervisor. Um, but the process, the, the choosing process we went through, um, dictated that he was. And And his way of nurturing my uncertainties and my kind of vulnerabilities around creativity and any sort of sense of voice um, was just remarkable. So it was a, a very gentle process that enabled me to say something like I've got all this stuff kind of hidden away that I don't really want to bring out into the world because I don't think anybody's going to be interested. Imposter syndrome was written all over, still is written all over me. And um, he would just tease that stuff out of me, just very gently. And and I remember him saying, you've got to get over just. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, whenever you have something quite profound to say, you say, I've just, I'm just wondering if, or this is just a thought. And he said, no, it is a thought. It's it's an idea. So um, my PhD supervisor was, was remarkable. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm fortunate to hang around now with a group of uh, guys working on the PhD program that I'm now responsible for who have that quality about them. They just nurture people beautifully and they do it to each other and they still do it to me. So I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Just the, 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 the awareness of, of that particular language, the just and the impact that it's clearly had. Uh, in terms of, you know, reshaping or, or reframing some some of your thoughts, um, it's hugely powerful. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and to be um, caught, there was there was another um, character that used to say to me, um, "Oh well, I would say, is it okay if?" And she said, "Just believe it's okay." You know, um, so it's those kind of moments where. Um, I think people spot a pattern and they just drop the little gem into the kind of pool. And in those moments, I've gone, oh, wow, is it acceptable? I wonder if this is acceptable, I used to say a lot. And I, I still have that voice in my head going, of course, it's acceptable. Just get on with it. Yeah, but in so, I'm smiling because I, I come from a similar uh, premise, if you like. And I can hear or have heard on occasions myself when I've been in organisations refer to myself as the new guy mm. as the new guy you know you know and, and it, it took a conversation when i was crossing the road at lunchtime with my manager at that at that particular time for her to kind of really make me aware of, of how i was coming across because in her mind she'd employed me um as the most experienced learning and development person within the scene yeah. yet i was almost undervaluing that um, and she knew why I was doing it. It was, it was a it was a confidence thing going into a new environment with 
with different challenges and, and, and different egos, she knew why I was doing it. But the moment she made me aware of it and said, well, you know, will you stop bloody referring to yourself as the new guy? You've been here six months. And by the way, you've got more experience than the rest of the team. It was a real kind of eye opener that said, I don't have to position myself as the new guy. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I look back over my life, there's probably a number of occasions where I've almost looked for that reassurance. I think it probably is reassurance when I, when I think about it from, from the, my peer group or those around me before I've just gone straight in with my, with my thoughts or my opinion on, on a particular question or, or subject. Mm. Yeah, I can, I can resonate with that. I mean, I think that's always been a trait of mine to kind of, as you say, it's a confidence trick in that sort of way. You kind of discount your own sense of self. Um, and and I, it, I really got further habituated to it when I was flying military airplanes because um, if you get too certain of yourself, that's going to be, you're going to be in trouble, you know, and you need to be uncertain and constantly checking and a bit afraid, you know, and then that's kind of the secret to longevity in that particular trade. You know, if you get cocky, you're probably about to do something really stupid. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know why, but I have images of Top Gun uh, running through my mind um, and, and an element of maverick. Um, and, and that cockiness and that, almost that overconfidence and, you know, I've, I've not been in the military, so I can't, I can't really comment with any you know, great depth, but, but clearly you have and, and they've served you well, you know, to, to spend that amount of time in that type of role as well. There aren't, there aren't very many uh, maverick fighter pilots, I have to tell you. They are very reserved, very careful, um, slightly nervous people, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because it, it reminds me of uh, the episode that's gone out this week on the podcast with, with a guy called Gavin Oates, and he talks about the all-black mentality. Uh, right at the very end, uh, I ask him for his final takeaway, and he, and he talks about, um, in, in the immortal words of the all-blacks, don't be a dickhead, um, <laughs> which, I, which I absolutely love because that's, that's reining people in and, and making sure they, they've got that. Um, element of humility and, and humbleness that, that's often required in, in a team uh, situation or certainly a, a very um, you know, pressurised situation that you, you will have found yourself in uh, on many occasions, I'm sure. Okay, Steve, what, what one thing do you see on a regular basis in your line of work that, that frustrates you? Oh, well... Um... Bureaucracy, you know, I'm not good at bureaucracy. It just drives me crazy. And um, I, the, the kind of organizational dance around procedures and processes and what we should be doing and what makes any sense in a particular moment to do. So I don't respond well to uh, <laughs> rules and regulations generally um, because I think they they were they they always worked at some other stage in the past, and now as as we're moving on and making sense together, our our rules, our regulations, and our bureaucracies. I mean they're there for a good purpose. I get that, um, but slavish adherence to um, arguments and rules that made sense some years ago. It drives me nuts. I just can't do that. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I have to be, you know, completely honest here and, and say I'm the same. Um, I, I've struggled in organisations previously because of 
the bureaucracy that, that exists. And I've never really been a rebel, um, but I, I have on, on occasion found a voice to, to challenge and, and question, you know, why are we still being asked to do things in a very archaic way? Um, I think the likes of social media give 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 the likes of you and I a, a platform to to just be ourselves um, and and to be our authentic selves. And and I think sometimes when you're in an organisation, you don't always get the opportunity to to really be yourself because they don't really want you to be yourself. They want you to conform, mm. uh, behave in a certain way. Um, work in a certain way and and you know take work home and, and invariably do that in the evenings and the weekend as well so yeah i have to agree i'm i'm, I'm completely with you there um what life lesson do you wish you'd been made aware of a, a little earlier in your career oh well well i i this has particular kind of charged me at the moment because i have two teenage kids and so as one is just about to go off to university and the other one's just starting, you know, today went off to start her A-levels. Um, I, I really wonder what you can tell people, you know. Um, but I think my... I think I was quite a... Uh, not a closeted child, but a small-town child, you know. And we live in the countryside now and everything's kind of idyllic um, as, as much as it can be. And I have always tried to open the kids up to this idea of a wider perspective. You know, there's, it's, it's more than just, you know, me and the team. There's, there's, there's a whole bigger view here, which, and we are connected to everything around the world, you know. So um, I'm always dragging the kids off or trying to say, let's go and visit this place. Let's go and see that place. Yeah, and they often hate it. But <laughs> that's, that's, I realize what I'm trying to do is just expand their horizons, not in any particular way, but just to say, hey, look, huh? I, I, with, my wife took us you know, over to Paris just recently, and um, it was lovely. We were just there for a few days, you know, uh, but I was constantly saying to the kids, see, how do you think this is different from London? Why is that? What's gone on here that's different? How are the French people? How does this work? You know, so it's that level of curiosity that I think coming from a, a fairly parochial background, I didn't have. And there were a few awakenings as I went through my subsequent career where I thought, wow, these people have seen life differently. You know, and I wasn't even aware of those perspectives. I wasn't aware that you could have a different perspective. So that's what, you know, hold a wider perspective would be the thing that I would hope for. I, I love that. Um... I, I could, we, we came back from Vienna uh, a few weeks ago and um, with, with my, my eldest two children as well. And we took them, we went to a couple of museums while we were there. Um, they, they had mixed interest in, in terms of Mozart and, and, and Beethoven. But similar to you, I, I wanted them to experience different things because, you know, they, they, their life is very different the pressures are very different on them c compared to what it was like for, for you and I uh, and other people of, of, of similar age but I wanted them to experience a little bit of culture I want them to to try different things in terms of um, food and cuisine and, and to see different places because otherwise they just see things through the, the lens of a of a phone or or a tablet or <laughs> Or YouTube, uh, which, you know, all of those things are great. 
um, because they expand people's horizon and, and learning and, and those types of things. But for me, you can't beat that first-hand experience of being somewhere different. Yeah. And, you know, and even then I have the a fear that, um, it, you know, we're, we're a privileged family, I think, at many levels. And in the West, we are generally pretty privileged. So I'm... I'm I don't think I've been very successful at um, unraveling for, for kids the fact that we're probably the top 5% of the top 5% or something like that. You know, when you look around the world, um, most people do not have our Western lifestyle. And, you know, a, a kind of uh, unappreciated privilege, I think, <laughs> drives me kind of crazy. So, and for me, the obligation that comes with that, I think we might be slightly off your question now, but. Um, you know, when I convene groups, when I'm with my family, I'm saying, look, we're the privileged people. If we can't change the world, who can? That's, it kind of comes with an obligation. Yeah. Spider-Man. You know, perhaps I should have shown the Spider-Man more. With great power, <laughs> great responsibility. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to put cloaks on and like her every day to, uh, to be a superhero. No, I, I, I like that. It's a great point. Now, you describe yourself as an academic, a photographer organizational consultant and executive coach we haven't touched on your photography yet but yeah. how did you go from well first of all how do you get into photography and then how did you go from photography to fighter pilot to academic because yeah. it's it's not a it's not a straight line and it's not a typical route either no no this, I, so i guess there's something about you know in my strengths as a obstinacy and a failure to um appreciate boundaries or limits. Um, I was very interested as a kid in English and it, as you know just in English classes in books and things like that and uh, didn't do very well in my early school years for a number of factors and kind of got thrown out of English and the thing that I always struggled with English language was um, the little soundtrack that says Steve you can't even string a sentence together um, and the other one that says and you can't write um, and so, and, and I think they come from the fact that I am quite a visual person and, you know, whatever that means, but I, I tend to, my head works visually and um, I was always trying to express something that I couldn't quite reach in the written form. I had a grandfather who was a very keen photographer and so I picked, you know, I was a bit beguiled by all the tech, um, but I sort of picked that up from him and by a sequence of interesting accidents really i i remember saying to my careers uh, tutor i'd like to be a photojournalist at the age of 14 or something like that and they said okay thanks and for your work experience you can go to the local foundry um so i spent two weeks not being a photojournalist um and then i but I, that really irritated me and it's kind of a red flag thing so i carry on red rag i keep pushing away at this and a gentleman teacher said to me, um, if you're interested in photography, do you realize somewhere down the back of the school, there's an old room, a store, it looks like a storeroom, it's actually a dark room. Why don't you see if you can get the keys to that? And he walked me through, although I was too young to do it, um, something like the uh, GCSE photography syllabus, uh, which was a lovely gesture. Um, so I carried on pursuing this, um, thought that in those days, photography courses at universities didn't really exist, but I found one on photography, film and TV, um, and 
suddenly realized that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people applying for this thing. So, um, and, and they were all mature students. They were all photographers. Um, I went off to a local conference, uh, run at one of my, uh, a local tech call on film. And so I sat there not really understanding very much. But when I got to the interview um, for the photography course, I started to talk about this. And the guy interviewing me said, oh, hold on. The guy that ran that course is actually in the next office. Let's get him in. So, I, it was, you know, I kind of blagged my way in, really, on the basis of, you know, a similar interest to the guy that walked into the office. So I, I stumbled into a photography course. And then I decided that I would try and work with some of the best names in, in the in, in the field at that time and you know ended up working for some of the top photographers just by kind of knocking on their doors really um that never happens if you're famous people tend not to knock on your door and say can i work with you because they're all too intimidated well i was too naive to even spot that so um so i got some work with some very interesting people so so it's just you know kind of putting yourself out there and then waiting for things to happen um i was in that business and i was getting a bit disenchanted with it because um, advertising photography and fashion photography are fabulous arts, but they're also quite exploitative. You know, and fashion, certainly in those days, fashion photography was on the edge of criminal, you know. Um, perhaps I shouldn't say that, but it was, it was pretty dodgy. Um, and so I was disenchanted. I was disenchanted with selling things to people that were basically rubbish and they couldn't afford them. So all that kind of social justice thing was kicking off. And... I was lying in bed and I saw a fabulous photograph of an aeroplane at low level, a fighter jet, and it, uh, the caption across the top of it said, wakey, wakey, wouldn't you rather be doing something else? So I filled out the little form in the bottom right-hand corner, this tiny form, and sent it off and forgot about it. And then a few months later, I was called up by the RAF to um, inter interview and test for being a fighter pilot three days of that stuff and I just thought well okay that didn't go well um, <laughs> I had no you know because people rock up at these things and they wanted to be a fighter pilot forever and I had literally seen the picture and thought that looks pretty cool um, and I thought well it is kind of a, 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 an intellectually stretching thing it's a very physically stretching thing it's all about you know physical challenge and hand-eye coordination and overloading your brain and um, anyway they signed me up and I thought they'll they'll catch me eventually, you know, and they never did. Um, so, uh, and, and I, so I went through a career in the military, flying airplanes. Uh, as I said, I got into it very interested in safety performance uh, around that kind of uh, occupation, and I moved into academia um, via my own company through a series of accidents. You know, people helped me. I remember going to a conference and helping a guy get a cup of tea because he was on crutches as I was you know, this was as I was leaving the Air Force and he happened to run a coaching company and he said to me why don't you come and work with us um, and, and, and on that on one of the courses I bumped into two ex-policemen who said we run this great training company in the Lake District come and do some stuff with us so it just grew and grew and when I did my doctorate the then director said come and work with us so I did you know, um, so it uh, doesn't have, you know, there's no particular design really in any of this. Um, 
which probably means that purpose is my thing. You know, how do how do I or anybody find their purpose when life seems so random and chaotic? Uh, it's it's fascinating. Again, listening to you talk about that, the journey that you've been on, and 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 how it almost happened by by chance uh, in in some cases. Share your thinking because I've I've had a look at your your website. I've I've looked at uh, quite a bit on your website now. Share your thinking around choosing to see and also choosing to think about our world differently because in some ways you you've gone full circle you're you're back in to photography as well as working in academia. What's what's your thoughts around seeing and thinking about our world differently? Um well, I think our, our world is in trouble, you know, that, that I think we can probably, well, may, maybe not all of us, but we can probably agree that there are things going on around climate and social justice and um, environmental concerns and, uh, you, you know, wherever you look, there are, there are pretty serious issues that aren't getting any better and everything, all the information we have seems to say it's going to get worse. So, um, so on, against that background, I was really interested in thinkers like um, David Bohm, who's a um, was a quantum physicist, and so so he's really looking into deeply into the way that the world works, and he ends up speaking to Krishnamurti, a spiritual guy, um, to try and get other perspectives on how the world, the cosmos, is, you know, and where he ended up was. I'm, I'm paraphrasing you know, years of work here. But where he ended up, he said, the problem is our thought doesn't work properly. The problem is not applying more thought to things. The thing is, the way that we think is fundamentally flawed. So um, I'm really interested in the way, and, and his view is something like, you know, um, what we've got is a product of the way we all think. You know, we've built this world, basically, from, or we've had a massive effect on it. Um, that's a product of the way we think together. Um, he says we don't think together very well. Um, and he says, in fact, when we come to these conclusions, we tend to say, well, it's obviously this or that, but there was a whole thought process in there that we didn't really um, have any consciousness around. So how can we bring our thought processes into consciousness? So that's um, kind of what I'm trying to do. And for me as a visual person, you know, thinking differently is seeing differently. So. How can, we, how can we see a different perspective uh, is the question that I'm trying to work with. And you'll have seen in the photo dialogues, what I've done with people is I've said uh, there are two questions. Show me your sense of purpose in a photograph and be in it. And that just, that's, that's, that's one of them. And the other picture is a picture that I take of them. Um, but, and, and the photographs really are, are a way into a conversation. And in each of these cases, what I'm trying to do is find people who are working differently and seeing the world a bit differently to everybody else and unpicking their thought around that. So how is it that you come to have this sense of purpose? How is it that you think about vision? Not, you know, what are you thinking about? How are you going to do more of that? How does that work? And how might other people then have a bit of insight into that and start to think differently? Because I think if we think differently, different stuff will happen. You know, it's kind of Einstein thing, be what you've always done, you get what you've always get. God, I think I'm saying if we think the way that we've always thought, the kind of process is inevitable. Yeah, and what struck me about you, even before we, we spoke initially, um, I saw a photograph on Twitter, and, and it was a photograph of a flower, but it wasn't a perfect flower. 
the mm. fact there was anything but what we're conditioned to believe a perfect flower should look like and it really struck me that you were at that point that one picture prepared to illustrate and share something that was equally beautiful but very different and challenging my own thought process around how we sold the world should look and, and that that's what provoked the thought that's why i got in touch with you that's why i was keen to to spend some time understanding because that's a very different starting point to to a lot of what is out there it's almost regurgitation of the same thing and we're getting the same result but you're you're confidently um certainly outwardly confidently prepared to question and and provoke different thought and and in some cases challenge what those thought processes have been previously yeah i tell you, I, I am quite naively curious about maybe that's a strength I'm, I'm kind of naively curious and i'm a bit of a nightmare to just wander around with because i go really slowly because i'm kind of look at that look at how it look at that and that flower to me it's like oh god look at that it's dying you know how it's beautiful it's amazing look look and i and, and i think that's what i do with my photography i illustrated a, a book on organizational development just recently and the pictures in there are really designed to make people stop now i'm not trying to say anything other than that but i think if we my, I, I i'm not I, i'm not really attached to a particular view of life but i am attached to the idea that we pay attention you know and observe and and are curious um so i think you know you, and, the, and the pictures in the book um, we're all a bit kind of odd, but there are things that I see and I go, oh, wow, just look at how that wall meets the floor or look at the angle of the light. Isn't that amazing? Um, so that uh, that was the story, of, you, you know, as, as a practice for me, that observation and the recording of things photographically has, has just been a thing where I was showing people, kind of showing the world in a slightly different way and saying to people, Hey, look, that's not the normal orthodoxy. Interesting, though, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and that, that's the key for me. Interesting, it is. Um, and what, what, what really strikes me is this naively curious, um, because curiosity on its own, sometimes people can view that as, as being nosy or, or being challenging or just, just almost overbearing. But I, I come back to what you were saying earlier about just and, and putting that at the front of a, a question or a thought the naively is almost uh, as we are when we're children you know and, and we're younger we we have this naivety that you know we, we're quite happy to explore we're quite happy to you know pick something up in the garden we're quite happy to touch stuff and, and be told off and what have you because we've got this naive curiosity and in some ways you're 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 going back to that and, and you're saying it, it's okay yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. I, I really love it when, um, if I'm taking a portrait of somebody, um, and, and the photo dialogue portraits are kind of on in this, that space, where um, I know there's, there's and, and this speaks to kind of real curiosity about relationship or about other people, but um, I know when I've got someone. You know, something just happens in that moment. And I'll be taking pictures of somebody, and then I'll just go, okay, I'm done now. 
and they go, oh, but what about, you know, I thought we were going to light it differently and I thought we were waiting for the sun. Uh, no, don't worry. I've done it. I've got it. I don't know what I've got, but I've got it. And then I'll show the picture to, you know, friends of the person. And they'll go, oh, wow, yeah, you've really got them. And, I, well, what, have, what has happened there? <clears throat> you know, what have I got? What's, what have I witnessed in that moment? So, well, you know, you know you've got it. And, and what's interesting there is the, the friends... <laughs> The friends of the people that you are, are photographing, they know you've got it. Yeah. So there's, there's a kind of a, a moment of truth in it all. Um, yeah. I'm going to cough in a minute. So. <laughs> <laughs> <It's been out. coughs> Struggling with a bit of a sore throat. Sorry, Jim. That's okay. Yeah. Steve, yeah, well, we touched on this a, a little bit, but, but I'd be curious to, to hear your answer. What do you see as your purpose and, and how you can make a good contribution? Because I know, I know making a contribution and purpose are, are important to you. Yeah. Um, I, the, uh, the work that I do with our doctoral folk and um, the work that I'm doing in my photography is, I think, something about witnessing people in moments where they where they are having insight or finding creativity um, or finding that kind of truth around something um, and and supporting them in thinking differently and I don't have any big sense of you know any grandiose sense of contribution particularly or changing the world but again my uh, Robin Ladkin the guy that I mentioned earlier said at one stage that he had been working in executive education and his best contribution was to release people into the world who were thinking, you know, critically about business. And I think, you know, what I hope to do is to enable people to think differently, uh, you know, and it's a, a, a kind of a humble proposition, really. But I honestly do think that's the best I can do. I'm not going to, uh, will any of us intentionally change the world in a particular way? I don't know. Um, you know, my, my whole story has been one of fortuitous accidents. Um, so, but I do think that if I can support people in developing the capacity to, to think differently, to see differently, that would be a good thing. Yeah, what, what, what I pick up there and, and want to touch on briefly is, is enabling others. Um, and and I, it reminds me of the conversation that I had with uh, my very first guest on the podcast, Mike Pegg who talked about um, you know there, there are people out there that, that are inspiring uh, encouraging and, and enabling um, obviously there's more people out there that are doing some not so nice stuff but in, in terms of the you know the development space and, and wanting to help other people um, he said there's inspirers encouragers and enablers uh, and I'd never I'd never seen myself as, as an enabler I'd always seen myself as you know hopefully somebody that could inspire uh, or, or at very least encourage but I think when when you when you enable people you're almost providing them with with the platform um, and, and it might be you know metaphorically or, or it might be mentally or physically for them to go out there and, and to do something different and that's that's powerful yeah 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 I, you know I, I, I even in those moments I feel a bit fraudulent because I think there are some genuinely talented people in the world working from a sense of real altruism i don't think i share that actually you know i 
I think I'm quite selfish about my motives for wanting the world to be a better place. And, <laughs> you know, it always sounds very noble when people say, my cause is to help other people. You know, uh, for me, my cause is to help other people to get us out of this condition we're in. Um, and I think that will be a better thing for me. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, there's a selfishness in there that I, is a guilty secret, I suppose. But I'm always awed by people who are genuinely altruistic. I find that amazing. Um, I don't think I can really own up to that. Um, I'm, I'm a bit instrumental in that. No, but behind that selfishness that you've just shared there is is, is people. It's other people. It's it's not about you changing the world. It's about you facilitating um, through your photography, through your academia, other people stepping out there and thinking, seeing things differently, and 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 then making a contribution. So. I think I think we'll allow you to be selfish. Uh, <laughs> I get such joy out of yeah this seeing the other person. It's that um, the witnessing piece for me um, to be able to say to people in their process or in the relationship, there you are, that's you. I love that, you know, and I can stare at portrait photographs forever because in most moments the photographer's caught something of that person and shown it to them, you know. So. Um, that for me is, is a is a kind of a fundamental pleasure. And I realize that going through, you know, first degree, a couple of master's degree, PhD, running the PhD program, it's not that. You know, that that academia educational stream is kind of helpful uh, in some ways and unhelpful in others. But it's can you show up and be with people in that moment and say, Yeah, I see you. I see you. You know, that for me is just absolute joy. And, and I, I would take that and I would translate it into into sound and into voice because what I've discovered through through the, this podcast is people are unashamedly themselves and quite happy and I haven't met in most cases the guests that I've interviewed on the show but they're happy to share a side of them or a part of them that perhaps others don't see or, or the outside world doesn't get get to see so i i feel through the vehicle of sound similar to you with the vehicle of of, of imagery and, and and pictures that you're you're almost party to something which not everybody else gets to see or hear yeah well you know and, and you're doing something now i mean i, I know podcasts sound like just in, you know somebody talking to somebody but i'm suspecting your process is very active because i feel like you know we've met twice now uh, on, on virtually and the way that you set this up enables me to speak my truth in some way which I if you remember last time I said I wish I was recording this because I'm saying stuff that I didn't even know um, and I am recording it this time so I will capture it but you know so so you're doing something here which is a parallel so it's enabling me to talk in a way that I might not otherwise you know photographers often don't say much <laughs> so um, there's something going on in these moments I think is really helpful and, and, and it's a privilege whether you're behind the camera or, or you're on the other side of the microphone um, to, to be part of, of that conversation or to be part of that moment um, it, because it's just it's just it's wonderful yeah and and and, and, and that's that, that's what I I really connected with you straight away was this humility and this genuine humbleness that, that comes through even though outwardly 
from social media, I, I was just like, whoa, these, these pictures are very different. And, and the commentary that was going with them was very thought provoking. And now I understand a little bit more why. But it was that humility that, that drew me to you. And, and, you know, even that first conversation, you were quite happy uh, to, to share a number of things, uh, which is fantastic. OK, Steve, I have at the end uh, or towards the end of each episode, what I call some 60 second quick fire questions. Uh, so this is really just to give the listener a, a different flavour of each guest. Um, so some things are a little bit different to, to, to what we've asked so far. First question, social media platform of choice, if you could only use one. Oh, if I could only use one, well, it would have to be Twitter. <laughs> ah, I see. I thought you might have said Instagram, being a photographer. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you can put pictures on Twitter. <laughs> I do. But it's, it's such, I mean, it's like shouting across a bar room, but it's fantastic. You know, I, it's, 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 it's the wild west, you know? Um, and I'm, I, and, and I follow thousands of people, you know, and I'm endlessly fascinated at the stuff that goes on. It's, it's, it's the curiosity piece for me. It's, yeah. uh, you know, I, I looked, some of the stuff I just pull my hair out at, some of it I think is brilliant, you know, and you could run a university course off Twitter. Some you know, people are putting information out there that is incredible. So I, I love it. Yeah, I, 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 I do enjoy Instagram, but I, I, I would always come back to Twitter, I think, um, just because you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> Someone that you admire and admit to following on social media. Um, you know, um, what's it, Maria Popova, the, uh, is she Hungarian-born or Czech-born woman that lives in New York who publishes Brain Picker? I think that's an incredible endeavor. Um, these summaries of thinking that arrive once a week, I think she, they, they arrive every Sunday. She might also put a few out on a Wednesday now. Um, and there's kind of a constant feed of stuff from her. It's, I mean, incredible work. Okay, I'm definitely going to have to check that one out. At Brain Picker, sensational. Okay, brilliant. Three guests to have to dinner, past or present. <laughs> I've got to, I, I looked at this and I thought, oh no, because I'm, I'm, we're pretty antisocial in our family, you know. And um, my, my, so I've got two answers. Um, my first three guests would literally just be my wife my son and my daughter you know i love it when we get together like that and uh, the conversation is, <laughs> is is always pretty lively um other than that i i would the people that i would really want to meet um and have a conversation with i once met don mccullin who was a, a very established war photographer sometimes you see him on tv now an amazing guy i'd like to speak more with him um so these are three photographers there's a guy who I have become very interested in and uh, called Dave LaBelle, who is an American photographer, old guy, may even be more than old now. But such, I saw, I have a DVD of him working and he is, he, he is so humble in his approach to people. They warm to him immediately. He's an old guy taking photographs of people in the street. I mean, just incredible work. And he worked in universities and, and colleges and was a newspaper photographer. And has done some stunning uh, pictures. And I think the final photographer might be, uh, oh, Sebastio Salgado. I mean, his work is just gorgeous, just aesthetically amazing and deeply disturbing. Um, so uh, I think it'd be quite a quiet dinner 
<laughs> none of those guys are going to say much, you know. <laughs> and they're all old guys, you know, so they'd be pretty, you know, old guyish. <laughs> Probably want an early night. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, absolutely. They're not going to talk much. <laughs> Brilliant. A book that you are currently reading. Oh, well, um, last night I read, uh, a friend sent this to me. Um, I've read it before and, and the copy went missing, but there it is. Um, it's Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak, which is a really interesting book on hearing, listening for your own vocation in life. Um, rather than chasing after a vocation, he says, um, you have to listen for it within you. It's a bit of this purpose and values thing. You, know, you can't pick up anybody else's values or purpose. You have to hear it within yourself. And he's very clear about that. So I love that. Okay, that's getting added to the list. Um, are you a podcast listener? I do. Yeah, I, I am. What do you like to listen to? Well, until now, until until, <laughs> until like Chris Akabusi on your, your podcast, um, I listen to Colin Wright quite a lot. Um, let's know things. I really like that. He, it's kind of he, he, the articles that, in his words, he unspools. It's kind of it's kind of slightly overly comprehensive for me, and I kind of go, yeah, get on with it. But um, he uh, his his insights are fascinating. I really like his his stuff. Okay, there's another one for me to check out. Yeah, let's know um, things. It's great. <laughs> A guilty pleasure, should you view it that way. <laughs> Uh, which you do when you have some time to yourself. Um, I do. I uh, well, I do watch slightly, you know, very trashy TV. So anything that's to do with um, uh, going off on mad expeditions or something like that. So, uh, but but in very mundane ways. So I really like the ice road truckers or you know people that are. Got these enormous trucks driving across Alaska. I mean, what's that about? On rivers, and they're just—they're just kind of ordinary people who give that a go. Or, or, um, uh, oh, I don't know. They do the same in the outback, don't they? I, those, 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 those two programs, ice road truckers <laughs> and whatever outback truckers is. That's <laughs> extraordinary and mad. And they make it such a big deal out of nothing. You know, dun 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 dun. dun. It is. You know, John going to get there on time? Yes, he does. And he rolls into Prudhoe Bay with his generator on the back of the <laughs> Incredible. It's like minus 50 or something. <laughs> I would not have had you down for ice truckers. <laughs> An item that you take with you on a long journey? Um, I, I tend to load up my iPad um, because the battery lasts better than my phone um, with podcasts and books and uh download a bit of tv or something like that um, that's that's a critical one one thing you wish you'd invented oh wow um gosh i haven't a clue um i might have to come back to that one okay i'll tell you what i'll tell you what this is the thing um i wish because i i'm now working working with video a bit more and um, what I'm learning about video, and you will appreciate this, is that sound is absolutely critical. So, and it's really difficult to do, to get good sound. So I wish I'd invented something that meant I could be a sound engineer without, without spending years trying to learn how to be a sound engineer and what sound is and how it, oh, it's, mind, it's much more difficult than 
photography. Um, so something that may, would make sound engineering dead straightforward. Okay, good. <laughs> and something that means something to you. Yeah, on my desk I have um, an old, you'll see it, listeners won't, an old Olympus OM2. My mother bought this for me when I went to college, I think. Or probably I was 16, it was before I went. Um, it cost £279. My mother's now died a couple, a couple of years ago. It cost £279. She could not afford that. And uh, I think there was some, you know, it was done on higher purchase over years. Um, but that has always been with me as a reminder of somebody else making a sacrifice on my behalf um, so I could follow a, a dream. <laughs> wow. Lovely. Three, three questions to, to finish. Who would you like to see or hear as a future guest on the Perfect Imbalance podcast? Um, there's a, well, there's uh, Satish Kumar is an interesting guy. And he is a giant monk who walked from India to the UK and set up, I mean, amongst other things, the research, I don't know if he set these things up, but he's closely associated with the Resurgence Trust and Schumacher College. And he just has a way of being ultimately humble and gentle in life, very interested in sustainability issues. Um, and I think he would be fascinating to listen to. I, I've read one of his books. I've never met him. I think he would be uh, brilliant. Such okay. I'll, uh, I'll reach out and um, see where that takes me. What projects are you currently working on and how can the listeners find out more about this? Um, I've got a few more photo dialogues um, kind of on the way and uh, they're on my website. Um, so those are the things that are kind of engaging me at the moment. Okay, good. Well, I will include details uh, in the show notes uh, in terms of your website. Um, one final takeaway for the listeners. Um, oh, let me read this. I, I, I can just find it very quickly. Right, this is Park, so this is my reading last night, Parker Palmer. Um, uh, uh, so I'm just going to paraphrase this. It talks about vocation. It's vocation does not come from willfulness. So by that, you know, we can't go out and get it. We can't, we can't take on somebody else's values. And he says, um, voc just jumping forward, vocation does not mean a goal that I pursue. It means a calling that I hear. Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I must listen to my life telling me who I am. I must listen for the truths and values at the heart of my own identity, not the standards by which I must live, but the standards by which I cannot help but live if I am living my own life. Wow, beautiful. And um, what a great message for the listeners to, to take away today. Steve, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to spend some time with you, uh, get some insight from you and have some new thoughts provoked by you. Uh, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. And I hope you managed to you know, continue doing the great work you're doing, giving people a platform to put these views out into the world and, and you know, wish you all power with that. A huge thank you to Steve for taking the time out to provide such insight into his career and now his purpose. You can find out more about Steve and what he's up to by checking out his website and, of course, the social media channels. 
definitely have a read of his latest blog, Waving Not Drowning. Moving and deeply personal, yet encouraging and enabling at the same time. Full details, as always, are in the show notes. Now, if you've enjoyed the show, please continue to subscribe, leave the show rating and pass it on to friends, family and colleagues. If you could write a short review, that would be fantastic. A big thank you to all of you so far for helping the podcast reach more and more people each week and as a result, allow others to consider alternatives to striving for a work-life balance. On next week's show, I'll be sharing my guest interview with Nick Littlehead, a world-renowned elite sports sleep coach who's been redefining and innovating a new human sleep approach, or as he describes it, mental and physical recovery for over 22 years. Until next time, thank you for listening to Perfect Imbalance. Remember this. When you have a balance, enjoy it. When you've got an imbalance, embrace it. For in those moments, you're striving towards achieving epic success, increasing your happiness, or looking for greater fulfillment. Bye for now.